Uh, it's good to see you. I'm, uh, I'm all over the place emotionally because I feel like I'm preaching to our home church and we're getting ready to, to move to the East Coast and uh, it's a joy to be here. I'm a bit disappointed because I'm loving the series in Daniel. Are you enjoying the series in Daniel? So I'm, I'm kind of disappointed to hear myself preach. I'd rather hear Dave preach in Daniel. So if, if you're disappointed to see me, that's okay. You're in good company. I'm disappointed in myself already. Uh, turn to Zechariah 9 if you would. Daniel was just too big a task for me when Dave asked, and uh, he's much smarter than I am, and uh, so we'll just go with Zechariah. We'll go a little more elementary this morning, uh, but we will touch on Daniel here and there. So Zechariah 9, uh, verses 1 through 10, and, and this is a prophecy, really, that's going to lead us up towards Palm Sunday uh, and, and uh, Passion Week, and you'll catch kind of verse 9 here. You'll see over in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem on the donkey, which we'll come to uh, next week at Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 10, uh, and then pray, and, and we'll get to work. Here now the, the word of the Lord, Zechariah 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is his resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamat also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon will be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth, and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. So that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Fathers, we turn to your word now as we turn to this, this great prophecy, as we turn to the, the truth that it contains. Thank you, Lord, that we can turn to truth, that we can read pure truth from your word. Help us, of course, Lord, not to try to change your word to fit who we are. Rather, Lord... Change us by your Spirit. Conform us, please, more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. For his sake, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in Galatians 4, Paul says, In the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And that phrase, the, the fullness of time, is a reminder that God does everything precisely at the right time no matter what that might look like from our perspective. Everything happens at the right time, according to God. I was thinking about time this weekend, and, or this week leading up to this weekend, and thinking this was the weekend a year ago that didn't really happen like this, wasn't it? 
This was the start of two weeks to flatten the curve. This was the weekend that we didn't gather at the, uh, the old sanctuary. Instead, we live-streamed out. We couldn't gather together. Maybe we even lamented that we couldn't be together. And, and that was a year ago. You fast-forward a year, and you, and you think, man, at some time, some members of this church decided to purchase this property. How long ago was that? Do, do we know, John? 20 years ago. And they had no idea at that time what would happen in the fullness of time? I mean, we had no idea a year ago that we'd be moving from, you know, Egypt into the tabernacle over here and, and building. I mean, we had no idea, just one more time, John, that we, we were going to, you know, be building. Look, in the fullness of time, there's a building coming to completion. I think one of the first times I sat with a staff a few years ago, there was discussions of how could that happen in the fullness of time, God would say. At the right time, at the perfect time. In the fullness of time, there'll be a, a sanctuary where there's astroturf right now. In the fullness of time, according to God, at the right time, the perfect time, these things will happen. And when we look at prophecy, we, we recognize right away that it happens according to God's plan in his timing. And the Israelites, is, as they're hearing this prophecy for the first time, they're in exile. Some have started to trickle back to Jerusalem, but they're about 80 years removed from Daniel's days, where Dave's teaching in Daniel in uh, 597 B.C. This is about 518 B.C., so it's about 80 years have gone by. And you have a nation that's still in exile in different ways, probably lamenting the fact that they're not together as a, as a nation, probably wondering when the time will come that they can fully occupy Jerusalem again, that they can be at the center of God's will and, and have him dwelling in his temple again. When will that time come? Well, as we look at this prophecy, this, this letter of hope that Zechariah pens, we'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at the, the overwhelming odds, the overwhelming odds, the surprising twist, and the king who reigns supreme. The overwhelming odds, the surprising twist, and the king who reigns supreme. So first, the overwhelming odds. To begin with, we should look at the, the cities in question. And, and their location is especially important with perspective with uh, relation to Jerusalem, okay? So verses 1 and 2, we get uh, Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamat. Cities to the, to the north of Jerusalem. And I think we have a, a map. If, if it comes up somewhat good enough to see. Ah, it's so small. See that big red arrow? I tried to add that in. Can you read the cities at all. Total fail on my part. I can see them perfectly from here, which does you no good at all, does it? So, you got into the handout. That's right. Can you read them on there? It's just absolute fail, man. It's going to get better from here, I promise. <laughs> the arrow's pointing to Damascus. It's north of Jerusalem. All right. It's, it's outside the borders of David and Solomon's kingdom. And it sets the tone for the prophecy. It says Yahweh's going to do something greater than even in David and Solomon's day. He's going to do something with more universal implications, something beyond the old borders. And it moves from there into verses 2 through 4. It talks about Tyre and Sidon. All right? and, and Tyre and Sidon, they're, they're on the coast there. They're west of Jerusalem. They're extremely wealthy. Tyre is extremely wealthy, and we'll look more at that city in a bit. But very wealthy, very well-fortified cities, ancient enemies of Israel. And then it comes down, verses 5 through 7, to Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron. Okay? Again, west 
of Jerusalem, but now further south. This is the land of the Philistines. Or it says in here, uh, Philistia, which is now modern-day Palestine. Maybe you can hear that. Philistine, Philistia, Palestia, Palestine. Okay, that's how we get there. So Palestine, Israel's old enemies, the Philistines, all over the place in the Old Testament. And so the prophecy says it's going to be starting to the northwest and moving from the northwest down through the south and to the east, according to Jerusalem. And, and the map, the green, you can't see the green, right? <laughs> Come and work with me. You can see the green, right? <laughs> it's not a total fail. Okay. The green is, is Alexander the Great's empire, and we'll talk about him. But you can see it starts in the top left in the northwest, and he sweeps down across to the southeast. So that's what the prophecy is saying. That's their locations, okay? Uh, it's important to understand, these are wicked cities. These are very wicked people. Amos 1, 3 through 10, calls out the sins of these areas. It, it focuses on their sins of, of breaking peace treaties, uh, slaughtering innocent people, engaging in human trafficking and, and slave trade. They're just sinful, sinful, wicked cities. Ezekiel 28 then really zeroes in on Tyre, and, and it says that the kings of Tyre, Tyre have, have labeled themselves as gods, that they've gained their wealth shrewdly, and then uh, they've been exceedingly arrogant in their fortifications, which is really the other important thing to understand here, and that's the fortifications of Tyre. It's very wealthy, but it's very well fortified. In fact, the, the word Tyre in Hebrew, it's, it's Sur. Sewer. And the, and the word for fortification is Mitsur. I didn't mess up on that. Do you hear how close those are? Sewer, Mitsur. Right? The fortification is a fortification, is what it's saying. The fortified city is fortified. It's, it's in the word. It's in the name. It's the meaning. I, I do this with our, our kids. I'm amazed at how my kids... Uh, names, they, they just are right there. I don't know if you see that with your kids. Elizabeth is consecrated to God, and I see it. She's just God's child, even sometimes more so than mine. I can just tell. And Abigail's a father's joy, and she brings delight to me. And Ben is uh, my right-hand man, son of my right side. He's, he's nearly always at my right side. And Tobias is supposed to mean a gift from God. <laughs> yeah. And he is. He's two years old. He's a gift from God. And I love him when he's asleep. And he's, uh, he's so sweet. He's a lot of fun. And, and he's a lot of fun. He's funny because he changed his name to Joe. Uh, and I don't know why. He, so if you ask him, what's your name? He might say Toby. He might say Joe. I don't know. I don't know why. But don't be thrown off. Uh, I don't know what Joe means. Maybe it means crazy two-year-old who won't sleep. Uh, <laughs> It means increase from God. Uh, but no, I see in my kids, I see the name really reflects who they are. And maybe you, you kind of see that. And that's, that's an entire as well. The name is what it is. It's a, it's a fortress that's impenetrable. And I think we have a picture. Hopefully this one works. Uh, we have a picture. Can you see that? Okay. All right, good. Uh, it's on an island coast. You know, it's on an island, half a mile off the coast. So you have to get to it, first of all. And she has a, a good navy. She has, she has a strong navy. She's engaged in trade. And you can see there's an Egyptian harbor and, and the Sidon harbor, and they're constantly uh, trading, and they're very wealthy, and they're very well fortified. Not only are they on that island, but they have a 30-foot thick wall, 30-foot thick wall surrounding her. And, and the way you deal with walls back then is you either have to knock them over or you have to scale them, right? So, so first you have to get to the island, then figure out a way to knock 
over her walls or get over them while they're picking you off while you just get there. It's a, a very well-fortified city. It's been placed under siege twice before this prophecy. Once for five years by the Assyrians. They just gave up five years. Five years. And then 13 years by Nebuchadnezzar. This guy we're reading about in Daniel, 13 years he puts this city under siege and finally just kind of settles on a treaty where they keep their money and their way of life and he gets sort of a client king. But 13 years this thing is put under siege and doesn't fall. So consider the, the perspective of the Israelite exiles when Zechariah says, Tyre's going to fall. That sounds impossible. It's going to be burned to the ground. That sounds undoable. That sounds like overwhelming odds. I was trying to think how to put that in our context today, and I was remembering being in Ireland a couple years ago. I had the privilege of pastoring for a few months there and, and uh, filling in for a friend, and, and they showed me their, their warships. Well, put in quote, their warships. I don't know. I'd go fishing on those things. They were uh, not that impressive of warships. And they showed me two of them, and that was a fourth of their navy. They were really excited. And I was like, guys, you have eight ships in your Navy. And it's important to me. I was in the Navy. Like, we should have good, strong warships. And what they showed me was not a Navy. It was a, a fleet of fishing vessels. I don't know. And I'm like, you're on an island. You should really have a big Navy. But they don't. That's what they have. And, and if I were to tell you that about Ireland and then tell you, I think they're going to attack New York City and just take over our eastern seaboard, you would say you're nuts. Get this guy off the stage. His maps are messed up. His prophecies are wrong. Uh, you know, you would say he's nuts to think that. The Irish coming over and taking out New York City and just burning it to the ground, that's what that would sound like to the Israelites here. This is an overwhelmingly impossible prophecy. It doesn't seem like it could happen. Yet, yet Yahweh is a God who loves, loves overwhelming odds. He loves when the odds are against him. What does Jesus say? With God, all things are possible. Things which seem impossible to us, they're just not that big a deal to God. He can easily say he will do the impossible. I think there's a point of application to consider there. Uh, where, where do the odds seem to be going against God in your life right now? Where do the odds seem to be going against God? Maybe... Maybe you think you're, you're too sinful for God. You're too addicted to something. The odds are you'll never be able to break that pattern or break that addiction or, or be loved by this God. With, all thing God with, with God, all things are possible. Maybe, maybe you know someone that you've been praying for for years that seems just, just so close at times to come into faith, but, but really it seems like they've built their own fortress around their heart and they're just... They're in there, and it's impenetrable. How could God ever break through? How could God ever reach that person? With God, all things are possible. Don't stop praying for that person. Maybe it's a, a relationship that's just been on the rocks. It's just been terrible for years and years and years, and the walls between you are just too thick. With God, all things are possible. And maybe it's also worth remembering how time works with him. All things are possible with God, but they happen in the fullness of time. As Peter saying in Psalm 90, that with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Time is a, a mute point for God. Remember, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Sometimes things 
don't seem like they're happening in the right time for us. It's the fullness of time for God. So it's worth remembering that. Sure enough, in the, in the fullness of time, Alexander the Great, he swept through this area. About 200 years later, 333 B.C., he sweeps through this area and, and he gets to Tyre. This well-fortified city that had withstood five years, it had withstood 13 years, and, and with Alexander, it stays strong for seven months. In seven months, Alexander the Great takes his relatively small army of 50,000 troops and crushes Tyre. Just crushes it. In fact, his army is so small that he can't leave people behind for the most stubborn cities. So what does he do? He just burns it to the ground. He utterly destroys Tyre, takes its wealth, and moves along. What are the odds that seem to be going against God in your life right now? All things are possible with God. While he's also a God who's constantly overcoming the odds, God is also a God who loves to introduce a surprising twist. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see him... And the overwhelming odds, and now we see a surprising twist. Verses 5 through 6 are where we find it. Verses 5 through 6 tell us that at the site of Tyre's destruction, the Philistine cities of Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron will tremble and fear. Anguish and hopelessness will consume them. All right, and this makes sense, right? If New York City fell, if New York City was absolutely razed and burned to the ground, we would, we would think Philly and Boston should be concerned as well, right? They should be trembling because something big's coming their way, and, and that's what happens. But then there's this twist in verse 7. This twist is that some of God's enemies, instead of being destroyed, they will be grafted into Israel. We see it again in verse 7. It says, uh, God, speaking of the Philistines, he says, I will remove the blood from their mouths. I will take away its blood from its mouths and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. You understand? That, that sounds really weird when you first read it, don't you? That took me a little while. Like, what is that saying? It sounds like they need to go get a teeth cleaning or something, right? Like, blood in their mouth and detestable things between their teeth. I, I don't know, it sounds like some crazy Shrek-looking creatures with things crawling around. It just sounds weird to us. Here's the deal, the... The references to the, the practices of eating bloody animal flesh and unclean meat. Practices taught in Leviticus to be uh, repulsive and unlawful. Practices that are a sign of spiritual uncleanliness and impurity. So when God says that he will take away the blood from their mouths and, and the abominations from between their teeth, what he's saying is the result of the Lord's cleansing of Philistia will not just be judgment and conquest, but the final result will be he will actually take a remnant from the Philistines, he will purify them, he will cleanse them, and he will cause them to become his people. And that's what that part means, that they will become like a clan in Judah. That these enemies of God will be purified and brought into his pasture. I, I would assume that all of God's enemies would just get eradicated. I wouldn't assume until you start reading the Bible that there's hope for God's enemies. And sure enough, if you were to go to Palestine today, in this very region, somewhat almost 2,500 years later, 
Out of the five million people you would encounter, somewhere in there, there's about 50,000 Christians. We don't think about that with Palestine much, do we? At least I don't. We see Palestine and Israel fighting. We think about the enemies of Israel. We don't think about the 1% of those people who are the remnant, who are the very fulfillment of this prophecy because they've been purified, they've been cleansed, they've been grafted into God's fold. They are his people right there in the middle of Palestine in this very region where God said there would be a remnant of his people today. We should consider the God who gives hope to his enemies. The God who gives hope to his enemies. God who gives hope that he can purify even the most unrighteous and abominable people. Maybe, maybe you need that hope too. Maybe you think you're the person with the, the blood in your mouth or the abominations in your teeth and, and maybe you look around at a room full of Christians and you say, I could never be as cleaned up as they are or I could never be as pure as they are. God gives hope to his enemies. Maybe, maybe if I were to press a little further, maybe some of us even know someone that, that is just wicked. Someone that, that the phrase, the blood in their mouth and the abominations or the detestable things in their teeth just, just perfectly describes how we view this person. And the thought of God giving them hope is almost, we don't like that thought. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Most of us probably have one person that immediately comes to mind that we go, I kind of like thinking of them as God's enemy. That helps. That helps. And he's a God who gives hope to his enemies. He's a God very much unlike us. And that's a good thing. If that, if that wasn't enough, there's a, another twist in here. And that twist is that Alexander the Great... Alexander the Great, though he sweeps through this area, just like the prophecy says, he's not the ultimate king, referenced in verse 9. So he's going to come through this whole region. He's going he's to destroy this whole region. He's going to take over this whole area in, in about 10 years. He's going to call himself the great king of the area. But he's not going to go into Jerusalem and sit on David's throne. We know this from history because uh, we can go to Josephus, and, and he writes in his Antiquity of the Jews that Alexander the Great, as he's sweeping through this area, as he's laying waste to all these cities, he comes to Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he kind of stops, and, and the high priest comes out from Jerusalem wearing all of his priestly robes. And, and Alexander, we're told by Josephus, he, he steps in front of his army with his general Parmeneo. And, and he's ready to pay honor to the priest of the God of Jerusalem. And, and Parmeneo asks him, how can you, Alexander the Great, the person who's adored by all people, how can you adore this priest? And Alexander says, it's, it's not the priest that I adore. It's his God. He says, when I was in Macedonia planning this campaign and getting ready and wondering if I should even do it, this priest appeared to me in a vision, and he said his God would give me victory on my conquest through this area. 
He's not even a believer in Yahweh, but he knows that the God of this priest has given him this area to conquer. And so he says, I I did. I, I came through and I conquered, and I haven't seen that priest until today when he came out from this city. And so we're told that Alexander the Great, he goes in to Jerusalem and he gives a sacrifice to Yahweh. And they show him in their temple, they have a scroll of Daniel. And they bring out the scroll and they show him that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies that Dave's teaching us about in Daniel some 80 years later. And he's, he's excited and he's overjoyed and he has favor on the Israelites. He allows them to continue their religious way of life after their forefathers. He gives them special treatment, as it were. So much so that everybody else starts claiming to be a Jew. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's a surprising twist. And it's a historical fact. Alexander the Great does not become the king to sit on David's throne. That's what God's telling us in verse 8. He'll protect his throne. He'll protect his temple for the rightful king who reigns supreme. And we know now as we look to our third point, the king who reigns supreme, we know that that is Jesus Christ and that he begins that reign on Palm Sunday, as we'll see next week. He, he comes into Jerusalem, and Matthew 21 tells us that he fulfills this prophecy here in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as, as Jesus comes in, he starts to fulfill this prophecy, and, and we'll look at it in this last section in, in three parts of his reign. First, he is humble and riding on a donkey. Humble, gentle, lowly, riding on a donkey, as verse 9 says. That might not seem like a big deal to us today, right? I did see someone ride by on a horse a couple weeks ago. I haven't seen anybody riding on a donkey in a while. Uh, if they showed up here at church riding in on a donkey, eh, okay, it's Valley Center, no big deal. Um, that's a big deal back then. A king coming in on a donkey says he, he's not here to wage war. He's actually here to identify more with the people he has dominion over. He's here peacefully. He's here to, to mingle with his people who he's very much like. Right? If, if President Biden were to show up for Easter Sunday, maybe he will. I don't know. We can pray that he will. Maybe he shows up here at Valley Center Community Church on Easter Sunday. Hey, if he shows up in a tank... That says something, right? That says the tabernacle's in trouble, right? If, if he shows up in a 20-year-old pickup truck, that's better, right? It says he's a little more like one of us. That's kind of what this is saying. Jesus isn't showing up in a tank. He's showing up in more like a 20-year-old pickup truck. Even, even more than that, though, his, his humble approach, it reveals his heart for his people. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus makes the only statement about his heart that he makes in all of the Gospels. What he says is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, there's this excellent book out right now. It's, it's uh, Gentle and Lonely by Dane Ortland, and you really should pick it up and read it. It's beautiful. And, and, and what Dane Ortland says in the one place, speaking of this verse, where the Bible says that the Son of God kind of pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. 
We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting, letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is he is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. And the posture most natural to him is, is not one of a pointed finger, but of open arms. That's our king. Gentle. Lowly in heart. Riding in on a donkey. Into Jerusalem. Just like the prophecy says he will. Unless we think that He's lowly and humble and unable to, to reign as a king should, at least in our minds. The prophecy says he's also righteous and having salvation. Righteous and victorious, maybe your translation says. It's interesting to note, Matthew's quote of this prophecy leaves that phrase out. It's got the humble and lowly part, but not the righteous and having salvation part, not the righteous and victorious part. What's it, what's it mean that he's righteous? It means his entire life is a perfect obedience to God, God the Father. All right, again, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman to be born under the law. So Jesus isn't just born at some random place in some random time. He's born in the right place at the right time under the Mosaic law. And so what's he have to do? He has to perfectly fulfill the Mosaic law his entire life as part of his righteousness. And you'll notice that nobody is ever able to give proof that Jesus did anything immoral. They, they try. They try to throw accusations at him. None of them stick. They, they bring false witnesses that everybody knows are false witnesses. In fact, they can't even find false evidence to bring against him. He's so perfect in all of his ways. But yet Matthew leaves that part out. That's because the righteousness, the perfect obedience, isn't finished on Palm Sunday, is it? King Jesus still has one act of obedience before him on Palm Sunday. And that final act will be to obey the Father all the way to the cross. And the final act would, as Zechariah 9 tells us, give him victory, make him victorious, so that, as verse 10 says, he can proclaim peace to all the nations. You see, King Jesus is a king who's going to win the world by dying for the world. He's a righteous king who's going to victoriously conquer his enemies by allowing them to crucify him. When he's crowned, it'll be with a, a crown of thorns. His robes will be the robes of, of mockery and abuse as they hurl insults at him, as they spit on him, as they beat him. His, his throne will be placed on a place called Golgotha, the skull. And he'll be nailed to a cross. And God's wrath for our sins will be poured out on him. The righteous man will complete his righteous life of obedience by obeying God all the way to the cross, to the point of death. So that, as Peter says, the, 
the many may be made righteous because of his righteousness. The many may be made perfect because of his perfection. And then this righteousness that he goes to the tomb with, when he rises again, when he rises on that third day, it is why he's victorious. It's why he has to be raised from the dead. It's why the the grave cannot contain him. And because he's righteous and because he's victorious, he can do what verse 10 says, and he can proclaim peace to all nations. He shall proclaim peace, Zechariah says, to all nations. His rule will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Right? And this isn't some sort of just hippie movement, flower power, 21 window van kind of peace. This is perfect peace. The, the word, the Hebrew word is beautiful. It's, it's shalom. You've probably heard it before. What is shalom? Shalom is success with complete satisfaction. Shalom is is prosperity, but with perfect contentment. Can you imagine that? Not wanting any more than what you already have. It's rest without any restlessness. It's the ability to, to always reach your destination perfectly whole. In a political sense, it's friendliness, it's an alliance, it's a place of refuge Shalom is where you find salvation. And this shalom, this perfectly holy, peaceful way of life, Zechariah tells us Jesus will proclaim not just to his nation, not just to the nations within reach, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. From sea to sea, from the great river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Look, friends, the the fabric of this world is broken, isn't it? We don't have to look far to see that. This is pretty peaceful in here. It's a mess out there. When the music's playing, when the band's up here and we're worshiping God, we get this this momentary shalom, don't we? It's just peaceful. It's what we long for. It's it's what is is just the desire is just deeply ingrained in all of us for all of life to feel like it feels when Jason's up here leading worship and we're singing and and the kids are standing on their seats looking at the words and and the music's reverberating through and and you know you're surrounded by God's people and everything is just right in the world for a moment. That's what we long for for all of eternity, isn't it? To to be rid of the, the brokenness that surrounds us outside this tent. To be filled with that perfect peace and to be governed by our perfect king. It was the desire of the Israelites living in Zechariah's day. It was, ironically, the desire of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. It's the desire of every nation, of all people, in all places, at all times. It's the desire of every man and every woman who ever has been or ever will be conceived to live in perfect shalom in the kingdom of the perfect king. To be at peace with our maker. To be at peace with the God of the universe. And look, the good news, the gospel news, is that because of King Jesus, we who are in Christ, we get to start to experience this. 
We who are with Christ, in Christ, we, we get to come into places like this and we get to gather with God's people and, and have these moments of shalom, these moments of bliss where we experience the perfect peace that we were created for. And, and then we gather again in, in smaller groups or with our families or, or with Christian friends. Again, we get moments of this. And in tough times, we can turn to God and we can experience the peace that passes understanding. That's because of the gentle, humble, lowly king. The righteous and victorious king who calls us his people. The king that overcame all the odds and lived the righteous life. The king who surprised us all by, by taking us, his enemies, and grafting us into his people. That's, that's what Christianity is, friends. That's all it is. A perfect, righteous, victorious king overcame all the odds and of all things puts this twist where he comes to us, his enemies, and brings us into his people. And here's his offer. If you haven't accepted it, here's his offer. Accept his reign. Just accept his reign. It's a reality. Just accept it. Believe in your heart and profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king who reigns supreme. He is the one who incarnated, who lived a perfect life, who died the death that he should not have died, and he did it in our place. Who, though he died, was put in a tomb for three days, who was raised again, who walked around, who let people see him, who let people put their fingers in the nail, in the holes in his hands from the nails of his cross. The perfect king who ascended to heaven, who right there is, is intermediating on our behalf, who will come again to claim his people. Accept that fact. Believe it in your heart. Profess it with your mouth. And you, though you once were God's enemy, you will become his people. He will purify you. He will cleanse you. He will raise you up to new life. And if you've already done that, if you say, well, I am one of God's people, well, praise God. Live in peace. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And know that, that someday, in the fullness of time, God will bring you home to your perfect home where you experience perfect shalom. Let's pray. God, you are a God of peace. You are the God of the nations, the God of, of immeasurable patience, the God of the impossible. Our God of hope, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. We pray for those who seemingly live without hope, Lord. We pray for those who, who live with, with bitter regrets or who feel the, the pain of being brought to ruin like these cities we've looked at, Lord. We, we pray for those who, who are your enemies. Oh, Lord, would they recognize that they're your enemies? Would you break the walls of their heart like you broke the, the walls of Tyre? Would you show them that the fires of your wrath have already been poured out on Jesus? Would they find new hope in you, the God who overcomes all odds? God, would you continue to surprise us by turning darkness into light? Would you continue to surprise us by bringing order out of chaos, by bringing life out of death, by cleaning and purifying even the most detestable people as we once were? God, we know that you are God who desires that everyone be saved. 
We know you are God who desires that, that everyone come to the knowledge of truth. And so help us. Help us be a people, a people who, who proclaim truth, God. Help us be a people who declare the gospel to all nations and, and all people all over the earth, from, from sea to sea, from the, the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth, as your word says. So that all people might by your spirit repent of their ways. They might believe in you, Jesus, our righteous, gentle, humble King who reigns supreme. Grant us, Father, that, that even now in these, these tumultuous times that we might be a people who lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity loving you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Always remembering that we love because you first loved us. Amen.